Though the sermon will be on verses 22 through 25, I will be reading verses 12 through 25. And we find ourselves on the second day of Passion Week, that is the day after Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. (laughs) Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are within the last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, going directly to the temple. Uh, To get there, he and his disciples had to go through Two villages. And these villages had names that would be ironic to the situation at hand. One was named Bethany, which translates a house of sorrow. And the other was Bethphage, or Bethphage, which translates as house of unripe figs. Jesus was filled with sorrow as he wept over the state of Jerusalem. And the day after Jesus looked around the temple to observe what was going on there, he illustrated what he found when he cursed a fig tree that did not bear any figs. This was another way of saying that the temple was not bearing any fruit. It is losing its usage. It is about to be judged and fade away. And the prophecies were to be fulfilled that the temple was to be replaced. There were merchants and money changers selling and profiting within the temple. And it became a place of commerce rather than a place of worship. And this led Jesus to drive the buyers and sellers out of the temple, flip some tables, and declare judgment. Is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer 
for all the nations. But speaking to the Jewish leaders, you have made it a den of robbers. Now there is nothing wrong with commerce in itself. But the temple wasn't the place to do it. There was a holy reverence for the place of worship that was expected of the people of God. So Jesus acted out of zeal for God. And the next morning, which would be the third day of the week, presumably Tuesday, as they were heading from Bethany back to the temple, Peter saw that the fig tree withered away to its roots and told Jesus about it. What he said with his words had come to pass. That fig tree that had withered was symbolized in the way the temple was to wither away. Now, what was Jesus doing? Well, he was doing a couple of things here. First, he was revealing himself as the Christ. Well, what does it mean for him to be the Christ? Listen to what our confession of faith says in chapter 8, section 1. It says this, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of His church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. He was revealing how He is the prophet, priest, and king of His people. He was the king riding in on a donkey to Jerusalem, receiving the praise of the people as he is the one to establish David's kingdom. He was the prophet who cursed a fig tree with authority and made it wither with his words. And he was the priest who was consumed with the affairs of God's temple and worship. Secondly, as the Son of Man and the Judge of the world, he came to see... If he would find faith in the first place, you would expect to find it. The temple. He came to those who claimed to be the people of God first. And as the people of God, they were expected to be worshippers of God. Who worship Him in spirit and in truth. But instead, they went on to mix the secular with the sacred. There was no reverence for God in the place of worship. Uh, That is why what we do here in the gathering of the saints is different than what we do out there in our secular vocations and jobs. Not everything is worship as some claim. Now Jesus was also signaling that temple worship with its sacrifices, the types and shadows that point to Him, was going to pass away. Yet the gathering of the people of God would remain. And it was to this gathering that he came. And the question is, did he find faith? Did he find faith? Well, no. It was echoed when Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. The temple that you just judged is about to just pass away. In judgment. Now, how did Jesus respond to this observant disciple? And Jesus answered not just to Peter, but 
to all of his disciples by saying, have faith in God. Have faith in God. In other words, do not be like the chief priests and scribes and those who have turned the house of God into a den of robbers. Do not follow those in the temple who claim to be the people of God, yet who are empty. Do not be like this tree that has withered. Rather, have faith in God. But the question is for us today, what is faith? In our world, in in the surrounding culture, faith is often described as positive thinking. Or something therapeutic which only benefits the one who has faith. When someone fails to meet a goal or does not achieve something, and they're moping around, someone is expected to come around and say, have a little faith, won't you? In other words, cheer up, think positive. There could be something better on the way. Now we don't know what that is exactly, but that is why we have faith. There must be something better coming. Uh, But what if nothing good happens? What if nothing better comes in this world? What happens to faith? The faith of the world sounds like blind faith. And ironically, it sounds very worldly. It sounds like it is only attached to outcomes that we enjoy in this world. Now, the Bible describes faith very differently than the world. There is no such thing as blind faith in the Bible. The world often prides itself in having a blind faith, a faith in the unknown. It sounds very mystical, and it makes many people feel special because they have a faith in something that nobody else knows. So they could just make it up as they go along. Faith in Mother Nature, for instance. Or faith in the universe, because it is so vast and unknown. Or some just make a smorgasbord of whatever they want when it comes to religion. See, that is not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible is not a blind faith or a faith in the unknown. It is a revealed faith. A faith in something solid as a rock. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. While at the same time we admit that we have faith in something that we have not seen, yet faith is the assurance of things hoped for, meaning we know it exists. And we have a conviction that we will see it one day. Faith consists of three aspects. Knowledge. We know it is true. Secondly, we agree with that knowledge. And thirdly, we trust in that knowledge. So we can't have faith in the unknown. Now, there are things God has left unknown to us. Uh, These are what we call the secret things of the Lord, and they are for Him only. 
But what He wants us to know, He has revealed to us. And we are to trust what He has revealed to us. And He has revealed to us all that we need to know in His Bible. In the Bible. So we have faith in what is known and what has been revealed. Uh, So faith cannot be, I could be wrong about this Jesus thing, but I still have faith that He is real. No, that's not faith. Faith is, I know that my Redeemer lives and that I will be with Him where He is one day because He will take me there. That is faith. So that means that faith has an object. Faith has an object. Faith is not generic or whatever we want it to be. Unfortunately, to my deepest heartache, I've heard parents say this, and I've even heard it from a Catholic priest who said, and it is a famous line among New Agers, have faith in something, anything. You don't have to agree with my faith. Just have faith in something and you'll be okay. As long as it is positive and it is good for society. You see, remember, to the world, faith is only useful when there are positive outcomes in this world. It is worldly. As long as it is used to your own success or for your own health or wealth or the safety of society. But it includes no thought of the author of our faith. But that is not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible has a solid object because He has revealed Himself to us. It is faith in someone known, not unknown. Jesus told His disciples, have faith in God. And He is speaking of Elohim, the God of the Bible. This is the God whom He has been revealing to His disciples as His Father, which makes Him God as well. And He does so by quoting Scripture. He quotes the Scriptures. He is the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture. And once we seek faith in a God that is described outside of the Scripture, we no longer have faith in the God whom Jesus calls His disciples to believe in. It is the God who transcends this world, who is able to do the impossible. Like when He saved His people from Egypt. And like when He saves individuals from their sins. Now I say all this, and I got in depth a little bit, because this forms the foundation or the umbrella for everything else that Jesus says next. This faith in the God of the Bible is the context for the rest of the passage. Because it is not a generic faith in a generic God or a God that we have made up in our minds. But it is faith in the God whom Jesus reveals to us. The God of the Scriptures. Now remember what Jesus was looking for in the temple. He was looking for faith. Did He find it? No. Why would we say that? Because Faith bears fruit. 
Faith bears fruit. See, the temple and the people in the temple were like uh, the fig tree that had only leaves. They had the outward show. They had the physical temple building. They had the religious sacrifices and offerings. They had leaders who dressed in priestly garments. They even had faith on their lips as they spoke or sung praise. But based on what they were doing with the temple, proved that they had no faith. Now we just answered the question, what is faith? And we know what they did with the temple. But what is the fruit of faith? What was the evidence that Jesus wanted to see? We know what the fruit of the Spirit is, and they are connected. But we're going to consider the fruits of faith. And here there are two. First, it is prayer. And secondly, forgiveness. Prayer and forgiveness. So first, remember what he said that his father's house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. God's people are to be marked by prayer. We answer the question this morning, well, what is prayer? It is the offering of our desires to God. It is showing our reliance upon Him. It is knowing that He has all things under His control. And when He came to His temple... He was looking to see if his people were relying upon God to see if his people were offering up their desires to God knowing that he has all things under his control. They were to be marked by prayer. But what were they lacking in? Prayer. They made it difficult for the Gentiles to pray with all the rush of buying and selling. And the minds of the leaders must have been preoccupied with profit, but the wrong kind of profit. Their minds were on the money coming in. So Jesus was saying, don't be like them who have no faith, have faith in God. Then he goes on to give them instructions in what? Prayer. Prayer. He says, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now there are many dangers of misinterpretation that we can fall into when approaching this text because prayer today, much like faith, is used for therapeutic and selfish reasons. Prayer is only thought of when it benefits the one who prays. Uh, There are even studies out there that show uh, that prayer is good for your health. Uh, But no one asks the question, which God are you praying to? Which is the most important question. And I believe the health benefits that stem from prayer is really found in breathing techniques of or uh, relaxation more than it has to do with prayer. But anyway. So the first danger in interpreting this text is that we interpret it literally. That's the first danger. That we interpret it literally. That what Jesus means is that we are to literally go to a mountain and ask the mountain to move and it will move to wherever we want it to go. If you insist that is to be interpreted literally, then after the service, take me to the closest mountain, which is about a little over an hour away, and show me. 
By this afternoon, we'll be seeing mountains flying around everywhere. But that is not what Jesus means at all. He is using figurative or proverbial language. It functions like a proverb. Now, this was common in rabbinic literature. It was used to describe how the impossible is made possible by faith in God through prayer. Now, this is one of the reasons that many atheists point to the Bible and say, See, we've never seen this happen before, and this is why the Bible is inaccurate. It's wrong. It's full of contradictions. And we can't trust what the Bible says. But remember, it is not meant to be taken literally. The most important tool that we use when we interpret the Bible is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Right? We can't look at a passage by itself and say, Aha, I got it. No. We must look to other passages. We can't settle on one passage and run with it. We must look at other passages. Listen to what he says, and I will remind you of a similar saying. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now this sounds a lot like what James says, when he says, let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For that person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So he is saying, pray big. He is saying, pray for those things that are impossible for you to accomplish without doubting and it will be done for you. He is calling for a sincere faith and confidence in the power of God. But the second danger when approaching a text like this is to ignore the context. The immediate context in this passage and the broader context of the entire New Testament asking the question, what will this mean for the disciples later on in the future? Right? First, the immediate context. He goes on to explain what he means right after he gives this illustration. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now this seems a bit outrageous for us. Because we're, at, we're saying to ourselves, well, I've asked for things, and they've never happened. The prayers were never answered. Is it because I lack faith? See, many people have misused this text to say to the sick, or, or to those dying of a terminal disease, that the reason why they were never healed was because they didn't have enough faith. That is a shameful and unfortunate butchering of this text. That is not what it means. That is not the implications that Jesus was trying to illustrate. So again, for passages like this one that has been misused, or that are at times unclear, practically speaking, we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we ask the question, is he saying... That we can ask for just about anything and everything. And as long as we do not doubt and we are sincere, we will receive whatever we want. No. No, he is not saying that. Ask yourself, did Jesus lack faith? 
Did Jesus lack faith? We would say no. We would say no. He was the perfect man who had perfect faith. Well, he didn't always receive what he asked for. Right? He didn't receive what he asked for when he fell on his face and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he didn't have any health benefits from this prayer since he was very sorrowful to the point of death and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What did he pray? He said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He was asking his father to let the cup of suffering and death pass from him and he didn't receive what he asked for. He didn't receive it. But listen to how he ends his prayer. With his thoughts directed toward God. He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So when he says, whatever you ask in prayer, it must fall under the umbrella of having faith in God. And it must be in accordance with God's will. Listen to John. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now this is why many people are discouraged in their Christian walk. Because they're expecting and praying for the wrong things. Or they expect God to do whatever we ask him to do. Listen to what James says. Again, he says... You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions rather than for the sake of God's glory and His kingdom. So now let us also consider the broader context of this passage by asking what lies in the future for the disciples that they would be expected to pray for the impossible. What did Jesus expect his disciples to pray for? We must remember what was going to happen to the disciples in the coming years of ministry in Jesus' name. In other words, they are expected to pray for their coming need when Jesus goes away to be with his Father. And they are expected to continue his work by making disciples of all nations. When Peter saw that the fig tree was withered, the illustration would have hit him home if he asked himself, is that going to be me in the future when Jesus sends me out? So they were expected to pray for the ability to do the work that he has for them, which would be impossible on their own. So when we read this passage, we should also open up the book of Acts. When we read this passage, the book of Acts should be on our mind. To read of the amazing wonders and miracles that the disciples performed by the powerful hand of God as they relied on Him in prayer. They accomplished what would seem to be the impossible. It was impossible for man to do what they had done for the sake of the kingdom of God. There were thousands converted, the lame and the sick healed, miraculous prison breaks, etc. So that was what they were to pray for. They were to pray for the impossible in the spread of the good news. 
Think of the prayer he taught his disciples. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even that prayer, we should open up the book of Acts. And the same goes for us as a church. Now I believe Pentecost was a one-time event, not to be repeated ever again. And it was for a specific purpose, to lay the foundation of the church. But even when it comes to the church today, in order to accomplish the impossible for the sake of God's glory in His kingdom, such as the salvation of souls around us, it requires a reliance on God through prayer. It is not just the reliance on techniques. We must go to God in prayer. We will bear no fruit without prayer and without abiding in Him. So this was about God's will to be accomplished in and through the lives of weak sinners like His disciples and like us. So what he he was saying is first that we are to approach God with confidence in His power. And our prayers must be without doubting with a sincere faith. Our prayers are not for the sake of putting on a show like the hypocrites who love to be seen in public praying. We are to pray believing that He is who He is and trust that He hears our prayers. One of the fruits and evidence that we have faith is that we pray to God. We talk to Him because we believe in Him. And secondly, as we drew from the Scriptures, our prayers are to be in submission to God's will. And they were expected to pray for the expansion of His kingdom and that they would be used effectively and fruitfully. Jesus was looking for faith and He didn't find any. So the warning for us is that we are to pray that the church today doesn't become fruitless. Not so much in numbers, but in true godliness and in prayer. We are to pray for His will to be done in our church. So here we have seen how the first fruit of faith is prayer, and now secondly, the second fruit of faith is forgiveness. We are to be a people marked by prayer and a people marked by forgiveness. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Here Jesus gives a requirement as you approach the throne of grace. You are to demonstrate that you are a child of grace toward anyone who has wronged you. Many have been taught that there is no forgiveness until someone repents But that is not so in all circumstances. What if someone doesn't know that they have wronged you? What do you do? He says, forgive. In fact, he takes it a bit further than that. If you have anything against anyone. Two important words. Anything against anyone. Forgive them. Now that doesn't mean you never confront them. But forgive them. Forgive them. This is the first stage of reconciliation with others. Forgive first. 
confront later, forgive again. See, the church is to be a place of prayer and a place of forgiveness. Why? Well, because we are a collective group of people who have sinned against God, but who now commune with God because we have been forgiven by God through what Jesus has done for us. And the fruit and evidence that we have been forgiven is that we forgive. He is not telling us we are to forgive in order to be saved. But since we are saved, we are called to forgive. Forgiveness is evidence of our own repentance. It is a fruit on that fig tree. And a lack of forgiveness will destroy you. It will lead to your withering. It will not only destroy all your relationships, because guess what? We're all sinners. We will all offend someone at some point. I might be doing it every week. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness. And it will eventually destroy us if we don't forgive. And if we don't forgive, it is rooted in pride, believing that we are above other sinners who have never made a mistake. And not only you, but it will also affect the church and destroy the local church. A lack of forgiveness will destroy the local church. How many church splits and church closures have occurred because one party or both parties just couldn't forgive the other? See, we ought to be a place of forgiveness so that lost people from the outside looking in will see us and say, hey, I think Jesus is there. Look at how they love their enemies. Look at how they forgive one another. That must mean I can find forgiveness there. To clarify, Paul says this to the Ephesians. And I'll close with this. He says this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness is rooted in what Christ has done for us. If we have truly received what Christ has done for us, and look ourselves honestly in the mirror, we too will bear the fruit of forgiveness. Our forgiveness and our prayer is a witness to the gospel, the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ. Let us not forsake or smear that gospel of God's free grace by our lack of forgiveness and our lack of prayer. Amen.